0: So the second of the churches that Jesus addresses in Revelation is this church in Smyrna. And like last time, we will begin by looking at this letter by seeing how the portrait of Jesus at the beginning, the first and the last, who died and came to life, and the promise at the end, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death how they fit together and what that then means for what Jesus says to the church. Now, this term, the second death, obviously implies that there's something that we would call the first death. However, we don't have the term the first death in Revelation or even in the rest of the Bible. And to complicate things a little bit more, Revelation speaks about the first resurrection in relation to the second death. In chapter 20, Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection, not the rest of the dead, but those who came to life and reigned with Christ. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So, while the Bible uh, doesn't use the term second resurrection anywhere or first death, the ideas of these two things are actually certainly there in the Bible and it comes back to the fact that History is defined by two men, Adam and Christ. One brought death, the other brought resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So, every human being is either in Adam or in Christ. Initially, all of us are born in Adam. Adam sinned on behalf of us all. So, from the very beginning, the moment we're born, we are dead in trespasses and sins, as it says in Ephesians 2. This is the first death. The death that we all died in Adam, the first man. It's a spiritual death. It's been estranged from God. It's been under His wrath. And while we still have physical life, it's life in a body that's under a curse, subject to decay, subject to death, which will finally succumb to mortality and return to the dust. Now, God, in his grace, didn't bring an end to Adam and the human race when he sinned. Even though the warning was, in the day that you eat of it, of the tree, you shall surely die, God made sure that his mercy triumphed over judgment. Because of the plan, he already had in place to send his son to die for sinners. So he limited the effects of death so that not only did Adam not die physically on the day that he ate, but also, even though he was spiritually dead, he was face to face every day for the rest of his life with witnesses to the goodness and the mercy of God in the creation of, in his own conscience and in God's direct word to him. Not only is it an act of God's grace that we are born in the first place, but it's his grace that every moment, every heartbeat we have is an act of his grace because every moment is an opportunity to turn to him in repentance and faith. However, unless something is done to change this sinful status of us being in Adam, we'll eventually, as Jesus put it, die in our sins. And that's the second death, when the grace of God that has surrounded us all throughout our lives will have come to an end. Every opportunity to repent will no longer be There, because we've demonstrated throughout our lives that we have no desire, no inclination in ourselves to even repent or believe. This is the uh, much unliked biblical doctrine of hell, of everlasting punishment. Now, many people who say that they reject the Christian faith say the reason they reject it is because of this doctrine. Many Christians are embarrassed by this doctrine and try to come up with a softer version of it, such as uh, the idea that the unrepentant will be annihilated, will cease to exist, or that everyone will be given one last opportunity after they die and will ultimately choose to say yes, once they've seen who God is and what Christ has done. But we cannot escape the fact that the person in the Bible who spoke the most about hell is Jesus himself. Jesus, who is full of grace and truth, spoke plainly about the reality of God's ongoing eternal judgement for those refuse to believe in him. If we have a problem with the doctrine of hell, it's likely that we haven't grasped the seriousness of sin. Sin is cosmic treason against God himself. It's not merely breaking a set of rules. It's slapping the face of our supremely valuable and worthy creator, refusing to thank him for everything that we have in creation, seeking to defame him instead of glorify him. So sin deserves a punishment that matches the crime, to be banished forever from the favour and the presence of God. And we may struggle with the idea of this punishment going on forever. But we need to remember that an unrepentant sinner doesn't stop sinning at death. It's kind of this popular impression that we reach the end of our lives, we die and then we kind of end up in this neutral place where we face judgement. But Even when faced with the full glory of God and a full understanding of the Gospel, anyone who remained unrepentant through this life will continue to be unrepentant in the next. So there will be no one in hell who wants to repent but isn't allowed to. Their willful rejection of God will continue and so too will the judgement that that deserves. So that's what it means to be in Adam, to have our beginning in the first death and our end in the second death. But then there's the Gospel. The Gospel is that Jesus Christ has stepped into this deadly stream and has brought about a new beginning. He entered right into our death and he bore the judgment that we deserve for our sin and then rose from the death as the firstfruits. And as the risen Lord, he then poured out his Holy Spirit who brought to us resurrection life. He raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly places, as it says in Ephesians chapter 2. So, while our bodies remain subject to the effects of mortality and death, we've been made spiritually alive in Christ, restored to our relationship with the Father. So, the first death has been undone by the first resurrection, Jesus' resurrection Through that resurrection, he gives, all, he gives life to all who are united to him through faith. Not just future life, but life right now. Eternal life begins in the present. So this new life and the deposit of the Spirit is the guarantee of the second resurrection, which for us has replaced the second death. In Christ, we've begun again with life and so we will end not in death but in life. When he returns, the spiritual life we have now will also be applied to our physical bodies which if we die before he returns will be raised from the dust and the ashes and if we're still alive when he returns, we'll be transformed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So, as we saw in Revelation 26, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection, over such the second death has no power. So there's the connection between the portrait of Jesus given at the beginning of this letter to the church in Smyrna, the first and the last who died and came to life, And the promise given at the end, the one who conquers, will not be hurt by the second death. He is the first and the last, which remember, that's an eternal, divine attribute of God himself. And so as such, he is the author of life with the power, with the authority to give life and to take it away. But he's not only the first and the last as God, he's also, as a man, the one who died and who rose, who came to life. He laid down his life for us, who deserved to have our life taken away and he rose in order to give his resurrection life and free us from the second death. This is the great hope of the Christian faith. Take that away, and we've got nothing better to offer than any other religion. In fact, without the hope of the resurrection and the defeat of death, Christianity becomes the most pathetic of all religions. Very often, the resurrection of Jesus is treated as something that needs to be defended or proven. And Jesus' resurrection is an event grounded in history. Its historicity is something on which Christianity stands or falls and the Bible itself points to evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. But we shouldn't think that simply proving it as a fact in itself is going to make a difference for us or for people. There was a recent survey done in the UK, there's always these great surveys done in America or the UK, I'm waiting for something to happen in Australia, but in the UK, this survey found that 48% of people identify themselves as Christian in some form. 45% say that they believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Yet only 20% of people believe that Jesus is God and only 6% of people in the UK are practising Christians. So what's the gap between those who claim to believe that Jesus rose from the dead, 45%, and for those for whom it actually impacts their life, only 6%? Well, it was said by an Australian evangelist Many people accept Jesus as an historical figure but they're actually asking the question, how is Jesus relevant to me? And similarly, people can say they believe in the resurrection of Jesus but have no idea of what it means for them. I can view the resurrection as an amazing and astounding, miraculous event which might make me open to believing in God or in the supernatural, but I also need to see that the resurrection of Jesus guarantees my resurrection. It's the hope that sets me free from slavery to the fear of death. As Jesus says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. What is your only comfort in life and death? Those who were doing Bible study on Friday nights a while back might remember the question, can you remember the answer from the Heidelberg Catechism? My only comfort in life and death is that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Saviour, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, And has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. You remember Jesus' words to John in chapter 1 of Revelation? Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Fear not. So does Jesus' resurrection bring you this comfort? If not, why not? So, why did the church at Smyrna need to hear all this? All that we know biblically about the church at Smyrna is here in this passage. And we know it because Jesus knew it first. He knows their tribulation, he knows their poverty and he knows the slander of those who are opposing him, those who are Jews but are actually a synagogue of Satan. The Smyrnians were surrounded on every side. They were facing the tribulations of the persecution that was coming from the Romans, the official state persecution from the emperor. That would have included things like being evicted from their homes, having their, their uh, property confiscated, all to try to coerce them to renounce their faith in Jesus and to swear allegiance to Caesar. In the first years of the spread of the Gospel, Christianity was viewed by Rome as a sect of Judaism. But as the time went on and the Jews became increasingly hostile to Christians, they began to distance themselves And that hostility from the Jews would have been twofold. They were rejecting, the Jews were rejecting the Jewish Christians' claim that Jesus was their Messiah, but they were also taking offence at the inclusion of Gentiles, non-Jews, into the church who in their eyes had no right to claim a Jewish Messiah as their own. So, there are those in the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue in Smyrna, who were siding with the Romans in opposing the church, saying that Christians have nothing to do with Judaism. That word Satan there simply means adversary, opponent. Now, it's in the midst of hardship that we're most pressured to lose sight of the hope of the resurrection. It's in the midst of hardship and tribulation that we most need to be reminded of the comfort that comes from the message of victory over the second death. But see what Jesus also knows about the Smyrnians He says, You are rich. And those who say they are Jews, well, they're actually a synagogue of Satan, they're on Satan's side, not his. There's always a hidden reality behind what we see and experience with our eyes, which doesn't always match with our perception of reality. It's the reality of Christ and his sovereign rule over all things. Our circumstances tell us one thing, that we're poor because of our lack of worldly securities and comforts or that we're insignificant because of the slander of those who oppose us. But then Jesus pulls back the veil and we see him seated on his throne as the risen Lord who has defeated Satan at the cross and who pours out upon us the riches of his grace through the Spirit, guaranteeing our inheritance as the Father's beloved and cherished children. So this reality is comforting for them in their existing sufferings but also prepares them for suffering that is to come. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. And this is where we can see these words as being particularly helpful for us today. We may not at the moment be living in the midst of persecution like they knew but we must never think that it won't happen to us the lesson of history is that social political mood can change within the time frame of a single generation or even overnight in some places things can happen that were unthinkable decades ago just within our lifetime and there are signs in australia and in the west That these things will become a reality for our grandchildren and great grandchildren if they're seeking to stand faithfully for Jesus in a culture that's moving away from apathy towards Christianity towards hostility towards Christianity. So we may not face tribulation now simply for being Christians, but we may yet. And we need to be always ready so that if we do, we're prepared to stand firm, needing, ready to continue to proclaim Jesus with truth and love. Those who stand firm in times of tribulation are those who have learned to stand firm in times of ease. But Jesus knows. He knows what the devil is about to do in Smyrna. Their tribulation is about to go one notch higher. Some of them will be arrested, put on trial with the prospect of being executed for their faith. It's going to look like the devil's winning and Christians are defeated. But Jesus knows. In fact, Jesus is going to use this worsening tribulation for their good and his glory. The devil and the world will think that this is about the church's defeat but Jesus has other plans. He says it will be for their testing. Remember what a biblical test is. It's not an exam to see if you measure up. It's the process that God uses to transform us into the image of Jesus. It's the, uh, the fire of testing that transforms a lump of rock into precious metal, making known the true value of the metal by removing the dross and purifying it. Ten is one of the numbers that symbolises completion. Just as having ten fingers means we've got the complete set. And this idea of a ten day period appears a few times in the Bible in relation to testing a person's suitability for a role. The most famous is Daniel and his friends. When they were taken away to exile into Babylon, they refused to eat the assigned food, which would have contained all kinds of unclean foods for them as Jews. Daniel said to the stewards, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So they did that. And then at the end of the ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So, whether the Smyrnians' imprisonment was going to be for literally 10 days or not, we don't know. But Jesus is reminding them of Daniel, who stood firm in the face of opposition and possible death, but in the end, the Lord vindicated him and used him for his glory in Babylon. Now, 10 might also be a reference to the Olympics. The Olympics ran for five days, so it's like the Olympics times two, possibly. And the reason I say that is because at the end of this verse, he uses an athletic imagery. Athletes would compete for five days in the Olympics, then at the end the champions would receive their reward, a crown, a wreath that they would wear as a sign of their achievements. And as they wore it, it would bring them certain privileges and advantages. Now, not all athletes would survive the Olympics. Some events involved fighting to the death. For some events, breaking the rules incurred the death penalty. So, a, a champion's victory could also mean that they were actually the only ones who survived their event. So, in the Olympics, the champion was the one who survived even by living. But as we've already seen, Christ's victory turns the world's idea of victory on its head. It's not whether or not you've managed to stay physically alive, but through the difficult race of the Christian life, whether in life or in death, Have you glorified Christ? This crown of life isn't the same as eternal life. We've already seen that promise, haven't we? In the resurrection of Jesus, that keeps them from being hurt by the second death. Eternal life is a free gift from God. The crown of life, as with the athletes, is a reward. It's given To acknowledge something that's been done. Let's briefly see how this term, crown of life, is used in some other places. In James, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. I think James read the book of Revelation, didn't he? It's almost a direct quote there. Being steadfast under trial doesn't earn salvation, it doesn't earn eternal life. However, there is a reward that awaits the one who does remain steadfast, in which God will give back everything and more that was lost in that trial. 1 Corinthians nine: Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath or crown, same word, but we an imperishable. Paul is saying this in the context of his ministry, of preaching the gospel to all people. He anticipates receiving a reward from God for his hard work. And that's why he never demanded payment. For his ministry, because his reward wasn't from people, it was from God. Peter says, Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory here the crown of life is described as crown a crown of glory and it's promised to leaders in the church who might be tempted to seek honor and glory from the people in their positions of authority and power he's saying no your reward will come from the chief shepherd on the last day not from people in the present and then finally, the crown is called a crown of righteousness. Paul says to Timothy as he's awaiting his Paul's execution, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not only to me but also to all who have loved his appearing. Paul's not saying he earned his righteousness before God by finishing the race, but that he knows as he languishes in prison, awaiting his execution at the hands of men who have opposed him and Christ and the Gospel, that God, the righteous judge, will vindicate him, will show him to be truly a man who has been justified by grace, through faith in Christ alone and whose work has been in service to his King who died and rose for him. Jesus says, Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. Nothing we lose in this world for the sake of serving Christ is truly a loss Because the reward we will receive in glory will far exceed it. As Jim Elliott said, the missionary who was martyred in South America, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose.